Welcome to the Love Reaching Community's Sermon of the Week. For more information pertaining to the life of the church, please visit our website at lrcchurch.co.za. Good morning. Were you watching the video on the countdown? Was it going to come on again? Just moving my stuff around. We've had quite a journey over the past few weeks since Easter. Let me recap for you. Just after Easter, Marlies preached, and she spoke about forgiveness and reconciliation and specifically grounded it in our coming elections and for our country. Then Johannes preached the following week, and he spoke about idols. What do we love more than God? Or who do we love more than God? And then last week, Duan asked us, do we want to live a life that's pleasing to God? Can you see a trend? God is calling us out of our comfort zone. And I'm wondering, as I sat here during worship, or stood, how many of you were out of your comfort zone? Why don't we just do normal worship? Why are we doing this? God is calling us out of our comfort zone. And often what we think, oh my gosh, I'm going to be so unhappy. Oh dear, this is awful. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I like my comfort zone. And the world more and more makes life comfortable, doesn't it? I mean, I don't even know where to start on how we make our lives more comfortable. Maybe just take that whole app situation. You got an app for everything. I was listening to two ladies in the gym the other day, and they were nattering about the number of steps and their heart rate and their how long, and they hadn't done this and da 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 da. So their little phone, their little app, records their steps. You can buy a home using your app. You can do online shopping with an app. Levi showed me the other day, you can take your little app and you point it at an object and it measures it for you. You just, it just brings it in. You know they won't. You can't believe what apps are out there. Life is easy. I can't do so, I just pick up my app, my phone with my app and I do whatever I need to do. My budgeting, my banking, everything. We are living comfortable lives. So let's explore this thing of, okay, church is saying out of your comfort zone. I don't think Falau, the guy that uh, Johan just mentioned, that Australian, he's been kicked out of Australian rugby. He's, he's given up a $4 million contract for Jesus. I think he's slightly out of his comfort zone. But we want to stay in our comfort zone. And the world, as I said, is pushing us there. Let's look at this post-truth society. We live in a post-truth society. What does that mean? Perception is reality. Perception is reality. I'm going to prioritize what I want, my interests, my feelings, is the most important thing. For my happiness... I need to have my interests satisfied, and I need my feelings to be good. 
So what, why do, how do we see that? Three things, just generalizing, just three things. We, do, we eradicate pain. We cannot tolerate pain. How do we do that? Well, myriads of ways. We take a pill for a physical headache. That's a modern thing. We take a drug. We take, we take part in illicit pleasure. We drink. I don't know what we do, but we do what we can to just kill that pain. Because there's not a lot, there can't be pain. If there's pain, I can't possibly be happy in my pain. We believe in subjective satisfaction. I must feel good about myself, and I must feel good about what I'm doing. Notice it? I must feel good. And the, and the sort of little add-on is, well, as long as no one's being hurt, I'm feeling happy, so it's good. I can do it. And then lastly, we want to feel fully alive. We are experienced junkies. I must be the first person to get the larniest phone. I must be the first person to move on. I must be the first person to tweet about that thing that just happened. People get married, and before the bride even has a chance to walk out of the church, she, her face is plastered across social media, because I've got to be the first one to got it. I, you see, I got the picture first on, my, on social media. And we get bored so quickly. We're looking for more and more and more pleasure. Is this just me? Is this what you see in society? Are we being conned into it? Are we? I think we are. And we think it's our right. It's how it's supposed to be. Happiness is about feeling good. And if I don't feel good, I'm not happy. There was a movie a while ago called Pursuit of Happiness. Will Smith, he played the role of Chris Gardner. Are we able to see these? No. Okay, there's a picture. No, we're not going to see any slides. There's a picture of, you know the movie. In the movie, he is, he's a single father. He's down and out. He has a little boy, and he lives in the streets, and he basically survives. He's looking for a job, looking for a job, and he gets a job with a prestigious law company based on truth, and he gets the job, but there's no pay. It's an internship, and he survives. And at the end of that movie, he gets given the job. And it's the most incredible picture. You can go and look, and you can Google and see the last scene of Pursuit of Happiness. He gets this thing, and he walks out, and there's just this absolute joy and happiness because he's got this job. And he says, and you see his face amongst the myriads of people walking through the streets of New York, and he says, this little part of my life is called happiness. And it's true. He's got a job. He can now support his child. And he actually went, the real guy, Chris Gardner, went on to make millions and millions. But what does that say to you and I? What gives us happiness? A job. So if I don't have a job, I can't be happy. If I have a terminal illness, I can't be happy. If I'm not feeling good about myself, I can't be happy. Guys, is that true? Is that true? It's very hard not to fall into that belief. But if we, if we wind the clock back and we look at some views 
of happiness. And sadly, we did have some slides which would help you to hear these more. Maybe we can put them on Facebook or I don't know, somewhere. But Aristotle, 380 BC, hear what he said. Happiness does not consist in pastimes and amusements, but in virtuous activities. So what does that mean? If I do good, nowadays we say if I feel good, I'm happy. Way back then they were saying if you do good, you will be happy. Socrates, no evil can happen to a good man. <laughs> if you're good, nothing bad's going to happen to you. Is that true? Bad things can't affect you. Freud, put out a word of Freud. Freud said, when a person is pushed to his or her visceral limit, then you find out who they really are. Squeeze the tube of toothpaste, what comes out. When we are put in a situation, in a trial, in a place of pain, in a place of suffering, what comes out? What comes out of you? Two things, basically, extremes, I know, but then there's everything in between. Either wisdom and growing in character or bitterness. As I look around this room, I can see many people, Reuben and Amy, Malise and Johan, Nick and Lisa, and many more of you who have been put under severe trial, and you have come out with character. And I'm sure there's many people that you can think of and that I can think of who have been pushed, challenged to the core, and sadly are totally bitter, totally dismissive of God. How can this happen to me? I'm a Christian. It leads into a guy called Albert Camus. I don't know how many of you heard of Camus. He won a Nobel Prize in Literature in 1944. Difficult to read. But he writes a book about how, what, how do you find meaning in a life devoid of God? I'll say that again. How do you find meaning in a life devoid of God? You know what his conclusion is? Life is meaningless. And he, he's staying with his thought. He's staying. He doesn't believe in God. And he's saying it's okay to, be, be, to be, have a meaningless life. There's a wonderful old, and he, he, he pulls this up. There's an old Greek mythology. Have you heard of Sisyphus? I'm so sad you can't see these things. But you'll have to, I'm really trying to picture it for you. Sisyphus did something wrong. And Zeus, in, it's in Greek mythology. It's a mythology. It's not real. Condemned this man, Sisyphus, to push up this huge rock up a hill every day. So you've got this picture, Sisyphus, pushing this rock. Push, push, push. Top of the hill, he gets there in the day, and guess what happens? He rolls down again. Next day, push, 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 push. All the way up to the top of the hill. Guess what happens next, that night? It rolls back again. We get up in the morning. We have breakfast. We drive the same route. Sometimes some people vary their route. We go to work. We work, work, work. We do our work. We come home. We feed the kids. We play with the kids. We 
go to bed, and we start again. We get up in the morning, we have breakfast, we go to work, da 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 Next day, what do we do? We start again. <laughs> Camus says, the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill, is enough to fill one's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. You must be happy because you get to do the same thing every single day. Same old, same old, same old. You must imagine yourself happy. Are you all feeling happy? Yoo-hoo! Same thing every single day. That's a belief out there. That is a belief. It leans into the Eastern way of thinking. First noble truth of the Buddhist says, life is pain. Conquer desire, deny yourself, and then you will be free. So we basically, what is this saying? Today, most of us are saying, well, if you don't feel good, you're not happy. This sort of path that I've shown you through the old, the old guys and, and philosophical thought out there is just accept pain. Just accept it. So just summarizing this, what do we do with pain? What do we do with pain? Because it seems to be my happiness is dependent on my pain. Either I eradicate it by doing everything I possibly can just to destroy it, or I stoically accept it, and I push my rock up, whoa and I come down again, and the next day I push my rock up, or I'm killing my pain, I'm killing my pain, I just don't want to think about it, I don't want it, stuff my face, whatever, just get rid of this pain. And guys, as Christians, we're often in one of those, other ca- ca- one of those camps. How are you today? How are you today? Oh, I'm blessed, hallelujah, God is good. Beautiful day, beautiful day, so good. We're just denying pain. We're just all these wonderful little saints sitting here and you're all so good and so happy and so tra-la-la-la and everything's good. Liars. Or, oh yes, I'm soldiering on for Jesus. It's tough out there. My child died, I'm sick, but oh yes, I'm marching on forward. (sighs) Stoic pain, it's not real. Both extremes are not real. Happiness does include feeling good. Happiness does mean I have to pursue happiness. But these extremes are unrealistic. Only the Bible. Only the Bible. And I don't say only Christianity because I don't think we have it all the time. But only the Bible gives us true happiness. Turn with me to Acts chapter 21. If I said to you, who's a man in the Bible who seemed to be... Tell us how he happened, he found contentment in everything that happened to him. Who was it? Paul. He says, I have learned to be content in 
all circumstances, in everything. When I was beaten, when it was good, whatever happened to you, I have learned to be content. How did he do it? Acts chapter 21, reading from verse 1. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. He's, he's sailing from Macedonia, from sort of the Greek, Greek, if you can picture it, to Israel. Having found the shipping, sorry, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he could not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. What's going on here? It's the end of Paul's third missionary journey. And he has, in the previous chapter, in chapter 20, he's talking to the elders from Ephesus. And he says to them in chapter 20, verse 22 and 23, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained. I think in our modern text, in our modern understanding, that constrained is a different. Constrained almost makes you feel like you don't want to. Hey, you stopped. But it's like lead, lead but strongly led, not just, you know, really convicted. He's been led by the Holy Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And then we get into chapter 21, and three times, did you see that? Three times he's told by the people in, firstly, the people in Tyre, then in, and then in Phine with Philip's daughters, and then Agabus, really, really strongly told by the Holy Spirit, it's going to be awful. You're not going to be happy in Jerusalem. Life is going to be really bad. In today's modern world, Paul would just say, well, then I'm not going. It's 
Spirit's told me it's horrible. I'm not going. Why would I want to put myself in a position of pain? Or as the, as the ancients said, I'm just going to stoically march into this. I don't think Paul went into that with either attitude. How can he be happy? How can he be happy? And so for us today, how can we be happy no matter where we find ourselves? Is it possible to be happy in pain and suffering? And from Paul's example, we know the answer is yes. Let's look at four things that we can get, glean from this scripture. Number one, Paul understands how he is good. Remember Aristotle and Socrates said, if you're good, then nothing bad can happen to you and you'll be fine. How does Paul understand he's good? He's not being Eastern or Buddhist in his attitude. He's not saying, well, I'm just going to quell everything that's real. All my feelings, I'm not just going to push them down because then I'll be fine. He's not saying that. So what is he saying? Well, in verse 13, he says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew that he was not good because of anything in him. The heart of man is evil. And no matter how much good we try and do, we are powerless to save ourselves. Paul knew that I am good because I am found in the hands of Jesus Christ. I have given him my life. He has paid the penalty for all my sin, all my rubbish, and I am secure in who I am in Jesus Christ. It's not about me being good. It's not about me pushing down my desires. It's about resting in who I am in Jesus Christ. Paul knew that. Do we know that? We need to remind ourselves I, who I am in Christ Jesus. And I can face anything because of him. Secondly, Paul knew and knows and we know there is a plan, always a plan. Verse 14 said, and since he could not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Where have you heard that before in the Bible? Jesus and Lord's Prayer. Another one. What did you say, Steve? Mary, you're right. There's plenty. Every single time of them, what, what, what that, that person doing? Person is faced with an impossible situation. Let's think about Jesus. He knew, being God, he knew what he was facing. He knew the torture, the pain beyond anything I think any one of us has experienced. The greatest pain being separation from his father. And he said, God, if it is possible, take this away from me. But thy will be done. 
God has a plan. So we, he didn't, we don't go just looking for pain. We don't go looking for suffering. But when we are confronted by it, we know God has a plan. We can trust the Father. And people I've mentioned have gone through pain. Many of you, I just mean, I'm sure many of you, most of us have gone through a season of pain. How have you reacted? At the end of it, you see the plan. Hey, maybe you still haven't seen the plan. I think of Bob Fuller, dear person in this congregation. 12 years of suffering. Full, he knew God had a plan. He trusted his father. Did it all fall apart now because he passed on? No. God in his wisdom knew the plan for Bob. We can endure pain because it's never permanent. But Laney, look at Bob. He died. Bob is no longer in pain. He is celebrating in heaven. He has a new body. Pain is never permanent. I have to put a little add-on. Unless you don't know Jesus. That's the reality, guys. Pain continues if you do not know Jesus. That's biblical. But if we know Jesus, pain always will end. God has a plan. Paul knew, I'm going in. The Spirit has said it's going to be pain and suffering. But I know God has a plan. We know the outcome of that plan. We have Colossians, Ephesians, many of his books. Where did he write them? In prison. We know the plan of God in allowing this to happen to Paul. Thirdly, Paul is filled with hope. Hundreds and hundreds of teenagers, in fact, are committing suicide. Teenagers, early 20s, are committing suicide. Why? Because life is meaningless. Exactly what Camus says. And they cannot be happy in this drudgery of life. They have no hope. So I may as well die. What's the point of carrying on in this mindless thing called life? We have hope. Paul had hope. Why do we have hope? Because of the cross of Jesus. Because of the death and resurrection of our God. We will always have hope. Paul said, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are more than to be pitied. But he was the firstborn, the first one who ascended into heaven. We have hope. With the cross, Jesus transfigured pain and suffering. All that pain and suffering had a purpose. What was the purpose? You and I paying the penalty for my sin. With the resurrection, he said there is always more. There is always hope. And Paul knew that. Later on, he writes, I don't know whether I want to die or live. To live, to die is gain. To live, I can live for Christ. I don't know which I want to do. There is always hope. God gives us powerful hope. And then this last one, I love the way in this, 
in this piece of scripture that Paul is immersed in his family. Look around you. We are family. We are the people of God who God has put together for this season, for this time. Look at, the, look, the, look at it. He gets to Tyre. He spends seven days with them. They end up with, they realize he's not going to be swayed from what God has said. They kneel in the sand on the beach and they pray for him. They pray for him. For strength. When he feels, God, this is so difficult. I don't think Paul was like, oh, you know, just stoically. I bet at times he was like, God, are you serious? Do I have to go through this? But his family prayed for him. He spends a day with the brothers in Ptolemy. Then Caesarea. Caesarea, I don't know if you know the significance of Paul being there in Caesarea. Several things. Firstly, where was the, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Where was the first place, you know the answer, where the Gentiles were filled with the Holy Spirit? Caesarea. That's where Cornelius lived. Peter went to Cornelius in Caesarea, and the Gentiles were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Jews were like, oh my goodness, God is extending his love, his way of life to the Gentiles. But there's more. Whose house did he stay in? Philip. Who's Philip? You rabble back. Philip was the one who went running next to the chariot and told the Ethiopian about Jesus and he got him and he was baptized. But further back, who was Philip? Philip was one of the deacons ordained with Stephen. Who stood by and watched Stephen being stoned and condoned it? Paul. Can you imagine the forgiveness that must have had to take place between Philip and Paul? Family. Forgiving each other when we do the thing that hurts us the deepest. Because we're family. Because God has put us together. There's obviously deep love between them. In verse 13 says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. In family, we feel each other's pain. We walk with each other in our pain. We encourage each other in our pain. And then finally, in terms of this family, all these people, in their best way, hearing the Holy Spirit. They didn't wrongly hear the Holy Spirit. But they were confirming the word, Paul, it's going to be awful. You're going to face pain and suffering. But their reaction was, oh, my goodness, we must protect him. God says there's going to be pain. Don't go. Avoid it. And don't we do that? We want to help people. And we think sometimes we've got to stop them from going through their pain. It's a hard one. And Paul says, stop. I know. I know. But I am constrained. I am led to go on to what God has called me to do. Are you happy? I know we talk about joy and happiness, but I'm, I really want to say, are you happy? How are you dealing with your pain? How am I dealing 
with my pain? It's a tough question. I know who I am. Why do I know who I am? Because I know who I am in Jesus. I know Jesus. And because I know Jesus, I know who I am. I am secure in my identity. Do you know who you are? Are you secure in your identity in Christ? And I know that what I'm doing is more right, more purposeful, more meaningful, because it is God's way. He made me. He designed me. He has made his plan for me. I am safe in the hands of Jesus, and therefore I can, and you can, we can, face life. And the way that we face life and we face pain is a testimony to those around us and will attract people, not to us, push them away from us, attract to the living God, the one who has hope. There's a song I want to sing. We're going to sing. Where's Marion? <laughs> Definitely not going to sing it on my own. You know that song? They're gonna, yeah. Can I say what we're singing? Yeah. Raise a hallelujah. Have you listened to Raise a Hallelujah from Bethel? What is that song about? It's when you are in pain. When you are in the dark place, what do you do? You raise a hallelujah. Not being stoic, not just pushing through, being very real in your pain. But Jesus, as we sang this morning, Jesus is high and lifted up. Jesus is on the throne. So let's sing that song, and then we're going to break bread. And I, I encourage you to break bread when you feel it is right, because we celebrate that our Jesus died on the cross. He conquered death, was ro rose again on the third day. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And if you're in pain, whatever that pain might be, we're family. We're family. Allow us to pray with you. Allow us to know a little bit of your pain, that we can stand by you. And with you, we can raise a hallelujah. Welcome to the Love Reaching Community's Sermon of the Week. For more information pertaining to the life of the church, please visit our website at lrcchurch.co.za.